Hi there, and lovely to have you along with me, Cleon and Ianlun, for another Spoken Stories podcast. My father comes into my bedroom and tells me that someone's outside. I go up on my elbows. The light from the bulb on the landing hits me in the face, so my father catches the door and brings it to half shut. Rooting around, he goes on. I can hear them. Anyway, hadn't Kate a sister a vet? Couldn't she call up her sister, the vet? My sister works with chimpanzees, not cattle, Kate started to say, but left off. There was no point. The woman that saved the monkeys, Mel Murphy said with wonder. Wasn't that the best ever you heard? Yet, even in his panicked state, he couldn't help but feel thrilled at what the dark did with time. How it peeled away great slices of life. Years. Decades. When in truth, I'd never before met such a person. And I'd meant my words to be jocular, pleasant, conversational. This collection of stories is called Creatures of the Earth, after the title of a story and a collection of stories by John McGahern. Each episode features a new story by a writer who accepted an invitation to contribute a story that started out by considering what creatures of the earth might conjure up for them and where it might take them in a story of their own. Previously, Spoken Stories Independence had writers think about what independence could mean, how it could present itself in a new story today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. John McGahern often referred to the fact that his own parents had experienced at first hand its turbulence, its repercussions, and how McGahern's own generation was the first born into independent Ireland. And so, in its way, Spoken Stories Creatures of the Earth is a natural expansion on its predecessor, Spoken Stories Independence. Together, they are a creative contribution to Ireland's decade of centenaries. Together, they illustrate how variously ideas can be interpreted. Here now is writer Christine Dwarhickey on her story, Near Adelaide. I wrote about something I knew and something about which I knew relatively little. The ten-year-old girl going off to boarding school, her father, the nuns, the dormitory, being surrounded by workmen as a child, these are all familiar elements based on my own experience. Whereas Australia, well, I've never even been there. But I am fascinated with the terrain, the culture, the literature, and of course, the Irish people who left home to settle there. When I began the story, I had no location in mind. A few pages into the first draft, and it occurred to me, my God, is this Australia? Then I found out whatever I needed to find out. We're all creatures of the earth. She has a bird's eye view of the land. She's, she's travelling by plane to the school and she has a, a relationship with one of her father's workmen, a much older man who lives in a place called Kubapedi. It's a little town underground, so they live like moles because it's actually too hot to bear. The heat is too much to bear. And there are also animal animals, real animals in, within it, like cattle and her relationship with, with that. It's a very earthy story. Christine Dwarhickey. Now, Emma Dargan Reed reads Near Adelaide by Christine Dwarhickey.
She had come from a house of men. They were there when she sat down for breakfast each morning and, during the day while she did her homeschooling, they passed in and out of the kitchen. She saw them again in late afternoon, when they came in for their Arvo tea. The men wore the same dark blue overalls. Some faded, some not. And on their backs, in slanted yellow letters, her father's name, twice written, Tim's Timberyard. Mrs Howe was the only woman to set foot in the house since her mother left. Mrs Howe and hopeless Bernie, who came to clean three times a week. Here, there were only women, the first real nuns she'd ever seen. She thought there was something elegant about the way they glided along in their long dresses and the soft hang of beads from their hips. Her father followed one of the dresses up a long corridor, and she followed her father. There was a sound of light voices singing somewhere. There was high, flimsy laughter that cut to silence as they turned a corner. Girls in green uniforms stepping back to let them through. Some of them more like women. One stuck her chest out as if she thought it was funny. The stare of all eyes on her. Up and down. The nun stopped at a glass door. This, she said, is your dormitory. St. Teresa's. The little flower. She didn't know who the nun was talking about and looked to her father, but he turned to the nun instead. We live in a remote region, sister. There hasn't been a church nearby for years, and homeschooling is all very well, but without a mother. The nun pushed the glass door open and smiled up at him. There were long, flowery curtains at intervals all the way down to the end of the room. There was a strip of flowery carpet running up the middle. She expected the nun to open the curtains one by one and for windows to appear with sunlight rushing through that would lift the dark, narrow look of the room. But only one curtain was opened, the one at the very end, facing out. There was a gap of light then, and she could see the crook of a pale blue bedstead and a small window deep set into the wall. The nun called it a cubicle. This, my dear, is your cubicle, she said. Her father stepped forward as if the nun had been speaking to him. His bulk filled the doorway, blocking her view. She could hear the nun's voice behind him, rattling along. Basin, wardrobe, mirror, dressing table, bed, everything, in fact, a young girl could need. Oh, yes, very good, he said, as if he was the one who'd be sleeping there. There's even a window. Not everyone gets one of those, you know. Her father turned to look out the window. He leaned his big hand against the partition wall, and it gave a little shudder. Out there is a farmyard, the nun said. Oh yes, we have our own farm here. Milk, eggs, veggies. We are practically self-sufficient, you know. You hear that, sweetheart? He said. A farm, eh? He turned then and saw her. What are you doing out there? Come and take a look, 
Oh, but you can't see the farm from here, the nun said. It's behind that big wall and strictly out of bounds. She might be able to hear the animals, though. And up there on the hillside, beyond the tennis courts, you can see cattle. Sometimes you hear them at night, crying. Crying? she said. The nun laughed and patted her arm. Not crying as such, not like a human cries. I should have said lowing. It can sound a little sad. But why? Oh, fear of something? Or hunger? Sometimes it's just a cow looking for her calf. But they are very fine cattle indeed. Brown ones. Ayrshires, I think they're called. Well, isn't that nice? Her father said. Cattle, eh? Knife, fork, knife, fork, knife, fork. All the way down to the end. Two salt, two pepper, two mustards, parked at intervals down the middle. The big oval plate heaped with slices of bread that Mrs Howe wouldn't allow her to carry to the table until she turned eight years old. Mrs Howe did everything else. Thick, freckled arms coming and going. She shuffled sausages on the pan and turned scrambled eggs with the wooden spoon and, with her bare fingers, flipped long slices of spitting bacon under a screaming hot grill. And then the huge teapot, hauling it from the stove to the sideboard, where a group of mugs were gathered, filling them up with long spurts of brown, steamy tea, without losing a drop. Mrs Howe used to work full-time, but was a half-day woman now because she was getting old. "'You don't look all that old to me,' she said to her. "'I'm a wrinkled old crone under all this meat.' I'd pack it in altogether, only who'd take my place? Unless you count Bernie, and well, she's just... Yeah, I know, hopeless. I could do more. Soon I'll be eleven. I could learn to scramble eggs, maybe? And when I'm twelve, make the tea, and... Your father doesn't want that for you, she said. He doesn't want me to scramble eggs? She laughed. He doesn't want you working in the kitchen. End of, Mrs Howe said. End of what? End of. That's all. On the day she turned eight, Lou measured her arms to make sure they'd grown long enough to keep hold of the oval plate of bread, and all the men whistled and stamped their feet when she carried it to the table, even if two slices had slipped off the heap and Lou had to pick them up and brush them off with his fingers. Mrs Howe used to let her help with other things too, she let her sweep the floor and fold the washing, and sometimes she gave her a basin of suds so hot it nearly skinned the hands off her. Then she showed her how to scrub the table. That's right, Pedal, she used to say. You give her plenty of grunt. In the dormitory, she lay awake and thought of her old kitchen. She put herself back into its morning light, and sometimes in the study hall, one arm hedged around her copybook, she drew the long table. Then, as if she was laying it for breakfast, she put each item down on the page with her pencil. Knife, fork, knife, fork. She drew chairs around the table and wrote a name on each one. 
she put herself between Dad and Lou. She gave Mrs Howe a place, although in real life, she never sat down. Once she even made a space for her mother, but seeing as how she couldn't even remember her face, quickly rubbed it out. After Mrs Howe became a half-day woman, the men made their own Arvo tea. They left little puddles on the countertop and flicked tea bags into the sink. She didn't like the way they ignored the big teapot and left the milk in the bottle plonked on the table. And the sick feeling she got in her stomach that time, she caught Charlie Reed drinking straight out of it with his row of rotten teeth. She couldn't concentrate on her lessons either, with the door creaking every few seconds, and a tickle or a tug on her hair, and all that looking over her shoulder to have a nose at her handwriting. And then the stupid jokes. Maury Ryan said if the homeschool moderator gave her any guff, he'd punch him right in the gut. And Frankie Foreman said she'd better not forget them all when she went off to that swank school near Adelaide. Oh, I'm not going. Why not? I don't want to. But you have to go to school, princess. My dad says I don't have to do anything I don't want. Don't think school was included there. Anyway, you'll love it. You'll make new friends. I have friends. I have you lot. Well, sure, sweetheart, but a best friend. Another girl. Someone to talk to. Wouldn't you like that? She wanted to say that she already had a best friend, and that was Lou, but she was afraid they'd think that was silly. Lou was an old man, the oldest in the yard. Still, she liked him best. Even if Lou hardly spoke to her, now that he'd gone a bit funny. I don't want a best friend. Now, do you mind, Frankie? I'm trying to do my lessons here. Oh, well, excuse me, Frankie said. Before Lou went a bit funny, he helped her with her lessons. Sometimes they watched a video together, like when she was doing her project on cattle stations in the Northern Territory. He told her stories about when he was a boy and about the town where he grew up. He had to show it on the map in the big world atlas because she couldn't believe such a place existed. Everything underground, church, shops, houses, because, Lou said, if you stuck your nose out in summer, the sun would burn it off your face. Cuba Petty, there it is, right there. It means Whitefellas Hole, he said, and she nearly died laughing. One day, she asked him to show where her mother was from. He didn't answer at first, just kept going on about the Gibson Desert. Then suddenly, he opened the atlas and poked his finger into a small shape at the edge of the page called Ireland. Do you think she went back there, Lou? Maybe. Think she's ever come back here? Maybe. Think she'll ever come back to see me? And don't say maybe. Maybe's all I got. But it could happen. When? Oh, could be any time. Could be years from now. What was she like, Lou? Please, just one word. Young. One more question, Lou. Think she misses me? I'm sure of it. Now that's enough. Back to work. 
Lou used to be first in for Arbo tea. Now he was always last and seldom said a word. He put his mug in the sink before he poured the water into it. He drank it over there too, with his back to the room. Mrs Howe said he'd been diminishing over this past while and that you'd need a hammer and chisel to get him out of those overalls. Mrs Howe was always saying mean things about Lou and his overalls, which was funny because she knew Mrs Howe really liked him. I think Dad's forgotten all about that stupid old school near Adelaide, she said to Mrs Howe. It's been ages since he's mentioned it. Anyhow, Lou doesn't think I should go. He said he knows my mother misses me and that she could come back any day and... Mrs Howe put down the dishcloth. You don't want to go paying attention to what Lou says. His mind's not right. You know that. Apart from the old priest who wobbled around the altar, or the farmhand's head driving a tractor under her window, or maybe the whole of him appearing on the hillside at evening to wave his arms at the cows, the last man she saw was her father. She missed having the men around her, their voices coming in from the yard, the splashing from the tap outside when they washed their hands before meals, and the sound of the machinery the roll and clatter of trucks and the sweet scent of newly cut wood. Most of all, she missed her father. She missed hearing his footsteps wander the rooms downstairs while she fell asleep. And then, sitting on the lip of the bath, chatting to him in the morning, watching him shave. Mrs House says all men are filthy beasts, if you ask her and that Lou's overalls could stand up on their own and walk all the way to Adelaide. Her father wiggled his razor into the water, then lifted it to his face. Mrs Howe said they'd eat off the floor, piddle in the yard, and spend their last dollar on beer before they'd think of buying a bar of soap. Except for you. She said you were a very clean man. She thought he'd be happy to hear Mrs Howe said that, but he only glanced at her through his little mirror. She tried again. We made a cake for your birthday. We put icing on and everything. I wanted to write your age, but she said better not. Why is that then? She said, reminding you wouldn't improve your mood. Did she now? Is 60 very old? Old enough, I guess. Her father barely touched his cake. He put his hand up to stop the men singing another verse of Jolly Good Fellow. Then he pulled his hat off the stand and went out. She waited for him to come back. She waited in the kitchen and at dusk she waited in the yard. She waited in front of the TV until her eyes started closing on their own. Then she went up to bed and waited for him in her sleep. The next day the bathroom was locked. When he came out, his eyes were red and there was a nick of blood on his face. The day after that, he remembered the school near Adelaide. The nun said she could walk her father to the hired car. It was so shiny, it looked like it was made of black glass. She could see bits of the school reflected in it and the steps leading up to the big front door where the nun stood waiting. She could see bits of her father and bits of herself. 
he hunkered down so that they were eye to eye. It's for the best. These nuns, they'll prepare you for life better than I ever could do. And three months is nothing. Three months is forever, Dad. And then what? You come home for a holiday and then you come back. Come on, sweetheart. It's school. You know how it works. I'll collect you in another swank car. What colour you fancy next time? Silver? Gold? And we'll go up in a plane again, and Frankie will pick us up, and everything will be just as you left it. Will Lou still be there? Lou is an old man. He can't work forever. Where will he go? Home, probably. We can go visit him, in his funny little house, eh? Make a holiday out of it. And if you don't fancy that, we'll go wherever you like. Even Ireland? No, pet. We won't be going there. He stood up and opened the car door. Now wipe those tears and stop carrying on like a pork chop, eh? You want the other girls to think you're a baby? What if she comes back? Who? My mum. What if... She's never coming back. But Lou said... You don't want to pay attention to Lou. His mind's not right. Right up to the last second, she thought, he'll change his mind. He'll open the door and say, Ah, to hell with it. Jump in. We're going home. But the car turned its back to her and slipped away down the avenue. For a few steps, she ran after it. That's what Mrs Howe said, she yelled. That's what she said. The day before she left for school, Lou spoke to her again. He was counting logs off the back of a truck in the far yard. She sneaked up behind him and waited. I know you're there, Lou said. Then he reached into his pocket and gave her a folded piece of paper. You didn't get that from me. On the airplane, her father gave her the window seat. He leaned across her, pointing down at things. Forests that supplied the trees for his timber yard hills and an endless highway, and swirls of dried-up riverbeds. They looked down at the different shapes and shades of desert. When they crossed the red centre, he showed her Alice Springs and said they were halfway there. She nodded her head and pretended to listen. She thought how big Australia was compared to the tiny country on the map Lou had given her. And if Ireland was that small... Dublin must be tiny. And if Dublin was tiny, it should be easy to find someone there. You'd probably just bump into them walking along the street. When they were over Cooper Petty, she pressed her face against the window. But all she could see was a blur of brown and yellow and red, with long chimney stacks poking out of the land like snorkels, and a lone Australian greyhound bus inching along the Stuart Highway. It took a while before she began to settle. She made friends or half-friends with girls who, like her, always walked by the wall. It meant she didn't have to eat alone or to sit during recreation pretending to read. Not that she cared all that much. She had her own thoughts to keep her alive and her own friends waiting back in the timber yard. She had her map, 
folded under her pillow. The sounds all around her. Snores and sighs, and sometimes the choking sobs of a new girl crying under the covers. On warmer nights, a milky diarrhoea whiff comes through her open window, and she hears the lonely sound of a cow lowing on the hillside. She holds the map to her chest and closes her eyes. She imagines herself walking up the hill behind the tennis courts, then standing at the fence, looking into the black field and hushing the lowing sound to silence. She senses life within the darkness, breathing and movement, the heft of muscle and bone. A rim of light spreading out from the nearby city of Adelaide, and she can see now the shape of the cattle and the shift of their enormous heads as one after another they turn to look at her. She can feel their gaze on her as she comes back downhill, crosses the courts and enters the school. Through corridors and up flights of stairs, they continue to watch her along the dormitory, into her cubicle, until she is safe in bed, map in her hand. Desert and forest, ocean and sky, a liquid movement of darkness and light. She sees Lou in a room carved out of rock, staring up at the ceiling. She sees a faceless woman walking along a street in Dublin. There you heard Emma Dargan read, read for us the story Near Adelaide by Christine Dwyer Hickey for Spoken Stories, Creatures of the Earth. Next time, the story Law of the Instrument by Lisa McInerney is read by Stephen O'Leary. And you can enjoy the commissioned fiction of Spoken Stories 1 Independence, including those by Anne Enright, Owen McGillivreda, Neil Jordan, Daniel McLaughlin and more, as well as this new series of Spoken Stories 2, Creatures of the Earth, as they are broadcast on RTE Radio 1 and all available on rte.ie forward slash culture and wherever you get your podcasts. From me, Cleon and Ian Loon, thank you for listening. <laughs>